0: So, today is a very important day in the life of the church as, uh, as we come to this Christ the King Sunday that delivers us. Can you t- yeah, turn me down just a little bit. Something, second one. Uh, through this Christ the King Sunday that delivers us through the last Lord's Day uh, of our journey in the Gospel of Mark for this year. Uh, and it's also one that provides a bridge, as it were, to the new church year that begins next week on the first Sunday of Advent. You can believe next week is already the first Sunday of Advent, uh, where we launch into a whole new lectionary excursion to remind ourselves from the scriptures who we are and whose we are as children of God and as servants of the king. And so it's it's a day to celebrate, right? to celebrate Christ as past, present and future king over all of creation uh, and over every earthly authority and ultimately of every human heart. And to express our hope and our faith that one day soon and very soon, as the hymn goes, uh, we're going to see the king. And when we do, that it will be to fall at his feet in full recognition of the glory and the absolute truth of his reign. And that's really, guys, the idea uh, of our lectionary reading today that picks up as Jesus himself makes claim to the supremacy of his kingdom and the veracity of his message in front of a man who... Uh, was the hand-picked representative of the ancient world's highest authority uh, and greatest superpower at the time. And that man was Pontius Pilate in his public role as Rome's prefect of Judea. So I hope you have your Bibles with you. We're going to be picking up in Mark chapter 15, and I'm going to be reading you the first five verses. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the true and living God. And Mark tells us as soon... As it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You've said so. The chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer So that Pilate was amazed. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for these uh, brief moments that we have together to again open and and read and study your word. We thank you, Father, for uh, this great example that we have of our Lord Jesus so boldly proclaiming the truth of his kingdom. And so we ask, as we always do, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, that you would write these words upon our hearts, uh, and you would use them, Father, to change and to mold us. And Father, we're here today asking uh, for you to open these scriptures because we want to see Jesus. And so we trust all of these things to you in his name. Amen. So, you know, we know from our Old Testament that the people of Israel had been promised a king. Uh, one anointed by the Almighty, a Messiah. And so for centuries they looked for and genuinely expected to find one, to find a man who would be an enigmatic leader, a a political savior, Uh, someone who would give them, uh, you know, the first century equivalent of a, uh, a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. And they expected someone who looked like a king. They were looking for someone who wielded power, Someone who commanded men and who demanded respect. Someone who was strong enough to save them from the Persians or the Greeks or, or the Romans or whomever. right? Whomever might want to tangle with them so that every enemy of Israel would be brought to heal. And in his sovereign time, Almighty God, in fulfillment of that promise and in response to the prayers of his people, did send someone. And not just a human someone, not just a human mighty man, but he sent his own son. The only trouble, humanly speaking, though, was Jesus wasn't what they expected a Messiah to look like. I mean, sure, he was spiritual enough. He certainly seemed close to God. He appeared to be wise. He even displayed the power of God to heal the sick and to cast out demons and raise the dead and feed multitudes. But he looked weak. He was certainly a holy man. He was a wonder worker, a prophet, yes. But was he the Messiah? Eh, because he sure didn't look like one. Especially when the Romans arrested him. I mean, think about it from their perspective. Would the anointed Messiah of God allow those pagan Gentiles to lay hands on him? And to to haul him into a corrupt court? And to be falsely accused by coerced witnesses? And be condemned by corrupt judges? Would the Messiah of God allow himself to be beaten and mocked and nailed to a cross? And so many among that crowd of onlookers that day thought, no, it can't be like that. That's not how this Messiah thing is supposed to work. And they thought, how, how is he going to kill the Romans and keep my stomach filled if he gets himself killed by Pontius Pilate? But by this man who, uh, along with Judas Iscariot, has gone down in history as one of the world's most notoriously compromised and traitorous individuals, right? And we don't know a super lot about Pilate. There's not a, there's not a wealth of information about Pilate in scripture, but we do know a good bit of his background uh, from a lot of extra biblical information about him in secular history, right? From those sources, we know Pilate was the, the fifth prefect of the Roman province of Judea. We know that although a position like his normally lasted only about three to four years, that Pilate actually served 10 years from 26 AD to 36 AD under the reign of the emperor Tiberius. Uh, And based on those historical sources, we know, for instance, that he came from an upper middle class property owner, strata of society. And we know that he liked the water because he made his political headquarters in the beach town of Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. But also whenever the Jews had any major gatherings in Jerusalem, he would pack up. And travel to reinforce the Antonia Fortress that overlooked the temple courts just to make sure that everything stayed under control and to remind the Jews that in the past they might have gotten out from underneath the sandal of Pharaoh but they were not going to throw off the boot of Rome as long as he was in power because it was the main job of the Roman provincial governors to do two things, to keep the peace and to collect taxes for Rome. And To do that first one, the Romans usually let the local conquered people keep their own religion and and as far as possible manage their own internal affairs as long as they didn't start coloring outside the lines. And so it was into that backdrop in 26 AD that Pontius Pilate arrived in Israel by the direct appointment from the emperor, sadly though knowing virtually nothing about Jewish Torah law or about the customs of the locals that he was sent to manage. And if that wasn't bad enough, the evidence suggests that it was not exactly a great match. Uh, because the way historians wrote about it makes it clear that Pilate despised the Jews. He thought they were whiny hypocrites who didn't appreciate all that Rome had done for them. And the Jews returned the favor and regarded Pilate as a cruel and heartless man. And so you just have, you have to kind of imagine all that. I told you all that so you have to imagine as Pilate enters into our story today, it's Passover season. And there's Pilate in Jerusalem along with King Herod. He's also along with Annas, the old high priest, and his son-in-law Caiaphas, the new high priest, and thousands of Jewish pilgrims who've come from all over to celebrate this sacred festival. And of course, as we've been leading up to over the last several Sundays, someone else is in town this week, right? It's Jesus. Jesus and his disciples. So, so all the players are now assembled as this final drama begins. And as the day opened, we, just exactly how much Pilate knew about Jesus personally uh, is a question we can't answer for certain. But we can't assume he must have heard of Jesus' popularity with the people. He must have known the chief priests and scribes had uh, no use for him. He must have heard the rumors of this Messiah traveling around the countryside. Because after all, it was the job of a politician to know those things. And to know how to read the mood of the mobs. And to be able to figure out how to maneuver around them and, most importantly, how to manage the expectations of the higher-ups back in Rome who expected the provinces to run like well-oiled machines. And so it's no surprise that the gospel writers told us this morning and were careful to let us know that Jesus' trial with Pilate took place very early in the morning. And so, You have to picture this. In comes the Jewish leaders with Jesus in tow. And they pinned a charge of blasphemy on him. Blasphemy, according to the Torah law, was punishable by death for Jews. There's one little hitch. The Jews couldn't condemn a man to death. They could try him, but they couldn't carry out the sentence. They weren't allowed to. The Romans had taken that right away from them under their occupation laws. And so before Jesus could be put to death, Pilate had to agree to it. Which is why they brought Jesus to the praetorium so early on that Friday morning. Brought him to the judgment hall. Place where the governor heard cases and rendered verdicts. So it's between about six and seven in the morning. All the parties were present for the case, and the Romans followed a, a certain routine in all their trials. The presiding judge would ask for a formal statement of charges, there'd be questions of the complainants and the defendants. Witnesses would come forward and give their testimony and be examined, and then after hearing all the testimony, uh, the judge would retire to confer with his associates and return with a decision. The sentence normally to be carried out immediately. The trouble for the prosecution though was there was no Roman law against blaspheming a Jewish god. Right? That was a Jewish matter. So the elders couldn't say to Pilate this man claims to be the Messiah because Pilate would have just waved his hand. Say so as far as Rome concerned there is no such thing. He would have chalked it up to a dispute akin to us arguing over belief in the Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy, and dismiss the case. And that would be it, because as we said, he had no real interest in the actual felt needs or the deep-seated concerns of the people that he governed. So he didn't want to get dragged into some internal nitpicky religious debate. And because of that, the Jews had to bring a charge that would get Pilate's attention, one that would reverberate all the way back to Rome if it wasn't handled properly and discreetly. And most importantly, for the impatient Jewish leaders who are now all in a tizzy over Jesus' popularity with the people, if it wasn't handled quickly. And so in the spirit of the same corrupt prosecutors we saw at work in the Rittenhouse trial, they adopted that old communist manifesto that uh, the left has us living under in America today. Uh, Show me the man, and we'll find you the crime. And so they did. They added a charge to Jesus of claiming to be a king. Something that he never did, at least not the way his accusers meant. But it didn't matter because now they had landed on something with political implications that Pilate couldn't ignore. And so we read Pilate asked Jesus, "Are you the king of the Jews?" King James, Jesus replied, "Thou sayest." In other words, his answer to Pilate's question is essentially, "You say so." And so it's not a denial. But it's not an unqualified yes either is it it's more like Jesus is letting Pilate know he doesn't really understand the full import of what he's asking the apostle John kind of fills in some blanks here that we don't get in the account in Mark so if you're still following along in your Bibles if you turn to John 18 we read so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him are you the king of the Jews And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what's truth? That's quite a remark in that moment, isn't it? I mean, considering who he's talking to. Although, honestly, it was not a particularly original question on the, uh, the procurator's part. Uh, because for centuries, thoughtful men of every sort have been asking in one form or another, what is truth? What's truth? Uh, it had been in the minds and on the lips of philosophers and scientists and artists and, and poets, teachers of every stripe, right from the very day our first parents got themselves kicked out of the Garden of Eden and that same question continued freely on downstream through generations until it leaked out of Pilate's mouth in today's gospel reading, almost as an afterthought. And, you know, sadly, as poignantly and climactically as that moment could have gone, there wasn't anything final about it, especially when Pilate didn't wait around for Jesus to answer him, did he? No, he, he essentially just rolled his eyes at the seemingly naive notion that anything even close to truth could exist inside the political and cultural vortex that he was caught up in. So he just walks away, lost in his own thoughts and probably wishing he had never met Jesus to begin with. You know, the Apostle Paul hit on the same human inclination when he said in Romans chapter 1, they know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. So you notice the order of this. See, the Apostle Paul here is saying we're living in a world in which the truth of God is literally breaking out all around us. But humanity is busy covering it up and hiding it, and suppressing it, and keeping it from being prominent and dominant in our thinking and the nature of the truth that's being suppressed is the existence of a holy and sovereign God of eternal power and majesty who created mankind and has the right, the only right, to determine the boundaries of right and wrong. And brothers and sisters, everybody knows that whether they want to admit it or not. And so we know all of those things, but, but all of us, you and, and me and everyone listening to this message, we're all born with a want to, right? Right? We're all born with the attitude we just want what we want when we want it. And it doesn't take long for that to seep into our culture. And it all begins with a society that says we know what's right, but we don't care. Don't talk to us about God or Christ or sin. Just keep that to yourself. Uh, Worship Jesus in your own time. Because we live in a day and age in which people look at their creator and flat out say to him, no. No, God. We, we know the plans you have for us, but we have plans of our own. Proving that the problem is not ignorance of God's truth, but the suppression of it and the rejection of his anointed king. And now, now, for us here in America, we don't have a lot of familiarity with kings, right? I mean, we know the definition of the word, but... We don't have any actual experience with them because we've all grown up in a democratic federal republic, and, and yeah, maybe from time to time somebody like Queen Elizabeth or or the the new King of Spain a couple years back will show up in the headlines. Uh, but today's royals are hardly an example of what monarchies historically have been. But to really understand Jesus' claim before Pilate and to understand. Christ the king today, we need to understand the ideal monarchy because church, the kingdom of God is a kingdom. It's not a democracy. In a democracy, the power resides with the people. In a democracy, the people tell the leaders what to do, at least ostensibly. Uh, and, and if they don't do what we expect, then we vote them out of office, unless there's a big ballot dump in the dead of night. And... <laughs> But in an absolute monarchy, things work the other way around, right? In absolute monarchy, power belongs to and flows from the sovereign. And church, that's what it's like in the kingdom of heaven, with God as the source of authority and with Jesus Christ as king over all those he's redeemed. Just like Colossians chapter 1 says, God has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Because you see, in Christ, now we're citizens of God's kingdom. We've been delivered from the darkness of this evil world and our highest allegiance now is to our heavenly king. Amen. A- and. and not to the so-called leaders of this land or the, the human authorities of this world, which honestly is the perfect lesson for this last full week of November because, church, that's why the pilgrims, our congregational ancestors, whose Thanksgiving feast we commemorate Thursday, that's why they came to America in the first place. They came here because they recognized a higher authority than that of any earthly monarch. And they came to America so that nothing could keep them From being faithful to that one heavenly king. In time the pilgrims Christian doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And of the the crown rights of Jesus Christ. flowed flowed on from those pilgrims and into the minds and hearts of the early patriots. Leading up to the American Revolution. And in our struggle against King George III. Till April 19th 1777 the morning after. Paul Revere made his famous ride to warn the people of Boston about the approaching redcoats. A guy by the name of uh, British Major John Pitcairn stood in the streets and shouted to an assembled regiment of local Minutemen. He said, disperse you villains and lay down your arms in the name of George, the sovereign king of England. To which the immediate and surprising and spontaneous response of the crowd was to yell back, We recognize no sovereign but God and no king but Jesus. We recognize no sovereign but God and no king but Jesus. And you see, they could do that because, church, they knew their history. They knew the history of thousands of faithful before them from the apostles who gave their lives for the sake of the gospel down to the first century Christians who were slaughtered in the Colosseums on down to the Scottish Covenanters who were labeled domestic terrorists and enemies of the state. And today, we, their descendants, find ourselves as believers in that same resurrected sovereign warrior king on this Sunday, the apex of our liturgical year, celebrating that same triumphant reign as modern-day rebels and nonconformists and enemies of the woke state, just like our ancestors were accused of being before us. And so what I want you to see today is... This is where the idea of celebrating Thanksgiving this week and Christ the King this Sunday start to pull together because both days are about which king you serve. So the first Thanksgiving was about that. It was about a group of people led by the spirit of God into the wilderness of uncharted America to live as they were moved by the word of God. It was about people being thankful for their abundant blessings and being grateful for what they had. It's about people refusing to eat from the hand of an oppressive government off in a distant capital if it also meant living under its heel for the privilege. So, but instead they gave glory to God. And they trusted in his provision and his protection even though half of their number died that first year. And church that fortitude and that fierce devotion to Christ are what our feast days should be all about. About serving the king of kings and remembering how he died how he died for our sins and rose again to give us eternal life. Our Thanksgiving this week should be about thanking God for his mercy and for his forgiveness and rededicating ourselves to live out the great commission in our individual lives and in this moment in history. It's about knowing when we gather around tables this week to eat turkey the difference between doing it to honor the false gods of prosperity and wealth or to give thanks to the king of kings who gave you redemption and election to eternal life. It's about looking to the kingdom of heaven by faith, or are you going to fix your eyes on this world and be afraid of everything? Be afraid of every nagging problem and every politicized pandemic that comes down the pike and And church, that's the question we have to face this week. Will we finish out this year for what's left of it? Will we finish it out in fear or in faith? and And yes, our world is a frightening place with the threat of wars and violence and terrorism the unpredictable setbacks in families and marriages and health and business right those things keep us all on the edge of our seats right but i can guarantee you god is not in heaven wringing his hands right now Uh, he never looked at the day's headlines and said boy i didn't see that coming no our christian faith is built on the conviction that our lord jesus christ has a cosmic reign. A reign supreme above every prince and potentate and would-be president on the face of this planet. And please hear me. Please hear me. We don't need to wait for some coming day when his reign will begin. It is in place right now. Today. Somebody should say amen to that. Amen. Right? It's in place right now in spite of any appearance to the contrary. He is in charge. Just as our Lord Jesus was completely in control of the situation in the events that led him to the cross that day in Pilate's court, because church of Jesus Christ is the acknowledged Lord of your life. You're already living in that kingdom by faith. So you don't have to worry. He's got it under control. Faith in his incarnation and in his ministry and in his suffering and in his death and burial and resurrection from the grave to ascend to the father's right hand in glory. And if you are, if you aren't living as Christ is the Lord of your life right now, first of all, I would say to you, wake up. Because he is your Lord, whether you want him or not. So now is the time to receive him. Today is the day to repent and believe the gospel. Today is the day. So ask yourself, is Christ your acknowledged king this Thanksgiving? If not, as as we pray to close, uh, receive him today. Right where you are. And if he is, if you know I'm His king, be strong this week. Be strong in the kind of faith that lets you face the troubles of life with a calm assurance. Be strong, church, because your king and protector is the image and fullness of the invisible God. Be strong this week in the face of this world's demands because you answer to a higher authority. Be strong in the face of darkness because you are a child of a sovereign who lives in unapproachable eternal light. And when the time comes... Be strong in the face of death, because you have an eternal home in the courts of heaven. So church, be strong today, because Christ is our King. Amen? Will you pray with me? King Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to lay aside the glories of heaven to come into this world to live, to die. To rise again from the grave and ascend into heaven where you are seated now at the right hand of glory, ruling and reigning over every aspect of this world and over every moment of our lives. And so we come this morning, Father, uh, at at, at this apex of our church calendar, uh, wanting to rededicate ourselves anew to you, resubmitting ourselves, Father, to your lordship in every area of our lives uh, so we would truly have all of Christ for all of life. Father, in this moment, I ask that uh, if there's even one here among us that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, if there's even one hearing this message uh, that is not prepared to kneel before you in submission, that you would open their blind eyes, that you would unstop deaf ears, that you would take out hearts of stone and replace it, Lord, uh, with your living Holy Spirit. And so, Father, uh, surprise those folks with your presence and draw them just uh, to you in these next moments. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this week ahead, for the opportunity to be with family and friends for the opportunity to praise you, Father, as we celebrate together. Uh, And we thank you, Lord, for sending us out with this message of our sovereign Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.